I grew up on 82nd and Park Avenue, which is two short blocks from the Metropolitan Museum. And I'd say we went there about once a month for about 10 years. That's what it seemed like. My parents collected the annual silver snowflake Christmas ornaments, which we still have somewhere. And we went to every major exhibition they had, including the King Tut exhibit in 1978, when New York City lost its mind. But at some point during every visit, the thought would occur to me, as I hope it did to many of the cousins I did not know then that I have, that the entire museum basically belonged to me. This is a podcast about entitlement, old New York City, legacy, genealogy, and trying to convince my newly discovered third, fourth, and fifth cousins that we are all part of the same family, even though we've never met. And that a gathering in 2024 might actually be fun, or at least a once-in-a-lifetime entertaining train wreck. My name is Taylor Molly, and this is Relative Strangers. It's time for me to stop beating around the bush and just tell you that my great-great-grandfather, John Taylor Johnston, the patriarch at the center of this project, was one of the founders of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and served as its first president for 18 years. That's why his name appears at the top of the list of grand poobahs carved in stone in the Great Hall, which is the main lobby you enter when you first walk up the stairs at 82nd and 5th Avenue and into the Met. And because I'm named after John Taylor Johnston, that's why I thought the whole museum was mine. Johnston acquired his fortune in railroads in the decades just before the Civil War. If you ever read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, which reveals some of the flukes and accidental factors that contributed to the outrageous success of certain people, you might remember that Gladwell devotes an entire section to 19th century railroad tycoons and why all of them were born in New York City within a decade of each other. Johnston, my great-great-grandfather, was the son of a successful merchant and importer who had immigrated from Scotland in 1804. But more important was the fact that he had been born in that window of time Gladwell writes about. He was the perfect age to strike it rich like his Vanderbilt, Astor, and Carnegie contemporaries. He wasn't the richest New Yorker in his day by a long shot, but he was maybe in the top 50? I don't really know. He was rich enough to be able to be a philanthropist on the side, but maybe not so rich to have become a household name. There's a Wikipedia page about him, however, and it wasn't created by me. But on that page, you'll actually see a black and white image of a portrait that is hanging in my living room in Brooklyn right now. Long before he helped found the Metropolitan Museum, John Taylor Johnston established himself as an art lover and amateur collector. He took extensive European vacations with his family, as one did in that day and age, if you could afford it, during which he purchased paintings, sat for well-known high-society portraitists, and even met his future wife, Frances Collis, the matriarch of this project, as she was touring Europe with her own family. 
Francis came from an old Dutch family with roots dating back to the earliest days of New Amsterdam. And it's through her that my children can call themselves 14th generation residents of New York City, which they absolutely do not do because they're either too embarrassed or, more likely, at ages eight and five, too young to care. Johnston was a supporter of American painters of the time as well, including Winslow Homer. Long story short, he and a bunch of like-minded wealthy friends founded what they hoped would become a world-class art museum in 1870, when he was 50 years old. And I think they'd be pretty happy to know that it's still going strong and might, just might, host a little rooftop cocktail reception for all his descendants in June of 2024. More on that later. The presenting sponsor of Relative Strangers is FamilyTreeChart.com, a company that can help you make all different kinds of ancestral charts. Here in my home office in Brooklyn, I have a 44-inch wide ascendancy chart on my wall that I created using Family Tree Charts online editor. Ascendancy charts have the youngest person at the center, in this case that's me, and each concentric ring going outward contains only the mothers and fathers of all those named in the ring it encircles. So on this chart, I'm the bullseye, surrounded by a ring that lists only my mom and dad. Then comes the ring of their parents, my four grandparents, then my eight great-grandparents, and so on. The online editor allows you to choose the colors and the fonts and helps you make it beautiful and legible. They can even help you take it all the way out to 12 generations, as I have, where the outermost ring would contain 2,048 names, if I knew them all. Family Tree Chart helped me customize that snapshot of my ancestors, and they can do the same for you. And they've created a promo code to get you 10% off your first order. And the code is, of course, METROPOLITAN. This is Relative Strangers, a podcast all about the descendants of John Taylor Johnston and Francis Collis, who are two of my great-great-grandparents. Because remember that we all have 16 great-great-grandparents. If that's a surprise to you, just understand that your great-great-grandparents are simply the grandparents of your grandparents. So, four times four. Whenever you hear someone brag about one of their great-great-grandparents saying something idiotic like, my great-great-grandfather was the founder of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and that's pretty much the exact voice I use when I talk about the accomplishments of my ancestors, it's fun to ask them, oh, really? Which one? Which of your great-great-grandparents are you talking about? Because you know you have 16 of them. So that ascendancy chart in my home office that I was just talking about, John Taylor Johnston and Francis Collis appear on it, but since it's an ascendancy chart, they're not in the center of it. They're in that ring of 16 great-great-grandparents, although they probably never met more than two of the other 14 occupants of that ring. That was a real epiphany when I realized that. 
Your ancestors may not be a cohesive clan who know in death that they are all part of your family. Looking back at where you come from, there's always two sides to the story, and every story has two more sides. The vast majority of your ancestors died long before knowing whom their descendants would marry. I always thought that when I die, I'd be joining a big party that all my ancestors would already be having without me. And that may happen, but just as likely it will be me who has to introduce them to each other, saying, you may have been alive at the same time on earth and may have even passed each other on the street. But you could never have known then that your great-grandchildren would one day marry and produce me, among others. Among others. This is the perfect place to point out that although ascendancy charts list all your direct ancestors, all those mothers and fathers who contributed their DNA to the pool from which you were constructed, what they don't show you is anyone's brothers or sisters. Ascendancy charts, therefore, have no aunts, no uncles, no siblings, or cousins. For that kind of information, you need a descendancy chart, where the person or couple at the center of the chart is the oldest, and all their descendants inhabit the concentric rings going outward, like ripples stretching all the way to the youngest folks at the outermost edges. Descendancy charts are what most people are thinking of when they use the term family tree. Except that if you've ever tried to draw one on the back of an envelope, you realize that family trees very quickly stop looking like trees after about three generations. And it's a far better use of space to have a radial chart that looks like a dartboard, or at least what's called a fan chart, which looks more like the tail of a peacock. The chart that I created for the Relative Strangers Project, which led to this podcast, is, of course, a descendancy chart showing all the children and the children's children and the children's children's children, etc., of one couple. John Taylor Johnston and Francis Collis inhabit the center, the bullseye, and I've attempted to list all 450, roughly, of their descendants in the seven generations that encircle that bullseye. Emily Johnston, remember, she's the Marsha Brady of the family who was married at 21 and whose descendants account for over half of the family currently. She already has a handful of fifth great grandchildren, the youngest of whom were born earlier this year. Emily's three siblings, to date, only have fourth great-grandchildren, the oldest of whom is a pair of twins born in 2001, so still a few years away from having children, probably, and the youngest of whom is, again, just a few months old. I have only one final thing to say about distant cousins and family charts, which I suspect may interest me more than anyone else. I may have mentioned that my generational ring on the family chart is yellow. Everyone in the generation before mine is dead. So the great-great-grandchildren, of which I am one, we are the oldest descendants alive of John Taylor Johnston and Francis Collis. All 80 of us have the same relationship 
to them. But they include my three siblings, my one first cousin on this side of the family, my 27 second cousins, and about 50 third cousins. You may have heard that the average American has over 300 third cousins that they do not know exist. And that actually sounds just about right when you consider that John Taylor Johnston and Francis Collis are just two of my 16 great-great-grandparents, which means I could construct a descendancy chart with any of those other seven couples at the center and likely discover seven different sets of about 50 completely new third cousins. I owe everyone an update on the summer gathering that I'm organizing for next year because the original plan got scotched by a couple of cousins who do not think this podcast is a good idea. Scotched as in ruined. And I feel I can use that word because I'm of Scottish descent. I've dropped a few hints and I'll have more to announce soon, but I can tell you that the new plan is to meet in New York City, which seems appropriate, and to have three or four events in different significant places around the city. It's also about time that I let you hear from someone else besides me, Taylor Molly. I have so many new cousins to choose from. That'll be next time on Relative Strangers. Please follow me on Instagram at Relative Strangers Podcast, where I try to be a little less dramatic and where you can currently see some sketches I've made on the back of an envelope to try to clarify the difference between ascendancy charts and descendancy charts.